for January 28th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 552. Death actually is all around us. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are locked together in a stagecoach that will not stop until we reach reach our (laughs) destination, uh, traversing the landscape of popular culture. Uh, Now, we've had a couple of couple of weeks without uh, doing a sort of movie of the week episode, which seems like uh, our summer staple. But uh, now is the time for now is the time for um, uh, for prestige movies for Oscar bait. Uh, Even though the Oscars have already come out, the Oscars have been baited. The trap was set. It sprung. I guess it was Netflix, really, who baited the trap because with Roma uh, and with the subject of today's podcast, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, they managed to uh, get a whole bunch of, of nominations for their films. I'm Matt Rather, and uh, in this Western journey across the unforgiving landscape uh, are my very good friends and traveling companions, uh, Matt Belinke. Howdy, partner. How do yourself, <laughs> Peter Fenzel? I don't want no scrugs. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark Lee. There's gold in them there hills, rather. <laughs> uh, yep. All right. So, uh, spoiler alert for Buster Scruggs. Interesting question. Do you think it matters whether there's uh, spoilers for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Oh yeah. I would say definitely that there are shocking, surprising moments in this movie that I would not want to know about ahead of time. Are what do you there? think? Are there? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, do we even want to refer obliquely to the shocking surprises? Because I, right. I was legitimately. So, so uh, here's the, uh, I mean, spoiler, spoiler wall. You're hitting the spoiler wall now. Here is the shocking surprise in every vignette. Everyone dies. <laughs> wait, 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 except one for exception. the dog. Except for the dog. No, except for Boomer. Except for Tom Waits. No, Tom Waits. Boomer. <laughs> I was so happy for Tom Waits because he's he's such a lovable character. I feel like he was like the real. I don't want to say he's the real MVP because there are so many people who were so memorable, including uh uh, uh the Dursley kid from Harry Potter, who was who was uh, apparently lost right. a lot of weight. By the way. <laughs> yeah, well, more and uh, more in his arms and legs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Tom Waits is like such like a you know has like such a, a character who was like a, a one dimensional stereotype on paper and made him so fun and so likable that like in it I was so I was terrified through the whole thing that he was gonna die a miserable death like and when he somehow didn't else. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was just like, it was just a question of how Tom Waits will die a miserable death. And when he like didn't, and, and it finally like faded back to the book and I knew he was safe. I felt like such a sense of like relief and gratitude towards the Code Brothers that they had let just this one uh, live to fight another day. I mean, it seems Lived like in, in, another day. in uh, Buster Scruggian, in Scruggian battle, right? Um, the dominant strategy is play dead. Because it happens a couple of uh, it happens a couple of times. It happens there, and it happens at the end of uh, or in the the penultimate vignette when after uh, attack 
the the what the head of the wagon train plays dead and then shoots the last attacker in the in the head though you know though poor Zoe Kazan has uh, has shot herself in the head at that at that point spoiler alert but everyone you love dies and <laughs> except for the dog the, the the god bless you president pierce boomer <laughs> this, one of the great things about this movie is on the one hand it's it's both this sort of very whimsical take on the old west is this sort of like the colors are very lush and and you i mean it's it's less like a a realistic gritty take on on the old, even uh, less realistic than something like True Grid, which is another Coen Brothers old western. Um, you know, it feels like it's it's, and I, I think it makes sense that the framing device is this sort of book. Of of stories, almost maybe, maybe like they're 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 uh, for young boys, right? They're like tales of adventure from the old west. So it's very mannered, and it it feels very like you know, like it, it's a. Um, not a true depiction of the old West, but a sort of like pastiche of, of, uh, Hollywood depictions of the old West. And yet like, it's so brutal, right? And it's so, um, grim, but it's, it's this weird thing where like, you know, it, it feels both kind of late and also very heavy. If that yeah. makes any sense. It's a great counterpoint to the idea that dark, gritty things or things that have a lot of brutality or a lot of kind of crimes against humanity in them are that way for the sake of realism, because it sort of feels like this movie is dancing around the idea of a verisimilitude and never really wanting to fully land on it, you know, keeps dancing away from it. But the sort of excess that it jumps to with regards to its, you know, fictionalization is it's a story. And then the excess it jumps to with regards to sort of brutal shock that, that it's kind of this existential kind of like warning bell uh, about the human condition. Neither of them are more or less realistic than the other in in a reliable way in how they're employed. Uh, and it's and it's very seemed evident that the death and brutality in this movie is there to be discussed and to make points and to be engaged with and to serve as sort of both artistic and ideological and kind of visceral entertainment purposes. Uh, it's very purposeful. It's not something that just exists like, well, if we made this movie without people getting their fingers shot off one by one, it wouldn't be realistic. It wouldn't really pay on homage to what the Old West was really like. It's like, no, in fact, uh, the situations wherein people have each individual fingers of theirs shot off uh, from, you know, 100 meters or 200 meters are, are not particularly well cataloged in human history. This is, in fact, something that is a fruit of the imagination. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to all of you telling me what the, the purpose of this is, because like um, and I gather that the rest of you enjoyed it quite a bit. I didn't. I felt it was more sort of like six oddball vignettes that like I would have appreciated more if there were like student films on YouTube or like the, the sort of like the equivalent of flipping through a handful of New Yorker cartoons. Gosh, um, gosh Mark, but, are, are you going to get all, it, oh, violence in movies is bad now that you're a parent? Come on, man. No, absolutely not. I, I fully endorse someone getting each of their fingers shot off in a movie if it serves a broader, <laughs> if it serves a broader purpose, but it kind of escaped me. It was like, and, and you know, I've, I've seen my share of Coen Brothers movies and I appreciate um, how they are, I can appreciate, not all the time, but sometimes appreciate how they're kind of meandering and they talk about like, for strength, like existentialism and it's certainly like the pointlessness of life. But like, um, it, it, as an additive total movie watching experience, like I didn't feel like, um, the six things added up to a broader whole. And so I am dying to, for you to tell me all why that in fact 
is the case. I mean, yeah. let, me, uh, let me let me throw something out, because I, honestly, there's a movie this reminded me a lot of in its sort of like the its approach to storytelling. And that is Pulp Fiction. Now, Pulp Fiction, the vignettes do connect, right? There are characters that overlap, but those overlaps feel almost like, I mean, more consequential thematically than plot-wise. Like, there's a story about Bruce Willis. There's a story about John Travolta hanging out with Uma Thurman. You know, there's another story about John Travolta hanging out with Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's a, a robbery and a diet, right? I mean, those are those are the main ones and everything. Um and they don't necessarily like directly impact, right? They sort of loosely inter. You know, there's a whole vignette. One of the parts that I like the most about Pulp Fiction actually is with the wolf, right? The that uh, Winston Wolf, who's like who's like the guy that you call when everything has completely fallen apart, and and you're stuck, you're just covered with blood, right? And you have like two hours to clean it up, and it's this whole sequence. It's probably ten minutes of the movie, and it has no. I mean, obviously it connects to something, but like it doesn't impact the plot at all. It's 10 minutes just about cleaning off the blood on a car in a clothing and, and yourself. Um, Including and a, that's bizarre, kind of a, short film. a bizarre scene between Harvey Keitel and Quentin Tarantino, where he buys off Quentin Tarantino into whose garage, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta have, have um, driven their car uh, covered in, in yeah. blood and brains and stuff who buys him off by buying him a new bedroom set. Like what, what, you know, what is the, yeah. the point of that scene? I, I don't know. Is this just, so, I mean, is this just a stylistic exercise? Pete, I imagine that you would say no. Well, is it just, what do you mean just a stylistic exercise? Is it, is it, is it only a stylistic exercise and nothing else? I mean, I, I think, oh. I don't know, I was trying to open up a, a way for you to talk about the kind of the vocabulary of ideas in in this film or whether or not, whether or not it's fair to call it a film actually is something that we could get real, real pedantic about. It's funny that you should, it's funny you should use that word and you know what word I mean? Oh, actually. Yeah. Because this is a move that another movie this reminds me of is love actually. (laughs) uh, Oh, wow. So you're saying that Buster Buster Scruggs is, uh, is death actually is all around us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny to think that people have objections to Love Actually, largely because the people who are in Love Actually are by and large not doing admirable things and by and large do not have like successful functional adult relationships. Uh, And that's not really the thesis of the movie, right? The thesis of Love Actually is when you look at a situation where people have behaved in an an inscrutable or difficult to understand way uh, and you want to attribute their motives to malice, you should instead consider whether there's something having to do with love that motivates what they are doing because love seems to be the main driver of what everybody does. And then it's it all builds up towards the big climactic airport scene right at the end. And and thinking about what you guys talking about Pulp Fiction makes me think, what would love actually be like if it were more like Buster Scruggs? And you just had yeah. each vignette that was like condensed and consolidated and like whatever horrible mistake had been made was like left in full relief to be considered at the end of it. Right. They're not uh, intercut. I mean, because some of the connections and like love actually the, the I can't remember who's the guy who wrote and directed it uh somebody will google it while i talk uh, snoop like, dog actually yeah it was no, snoop dog i believe yeah. um right before he did california girls yes. um but i i th- this guy clearly feels that it is important 
to have a fig leaf of interconnection. A good example is how, like, Hugh Grant is the prime minister of Great Britain. Um, his sister is Alan Rickman's wife, right? And this is established as, like, one quick phone call, right, where he calls uh, her and they, like, say hi, right? And it's not important at all, except for that it establishes that there's some sort of vague web of connection that's drawing all these characters, but not even drawing them together because it's not like they all show up at the same bar at the end, right? It's just sort of like almost an excuse about why these stories, you know, are justified in sharing the screen. And the Coen brothers, it's almost it feels almost shocking and confusing because they did. You could almost imagine a version of this movie where there is some sort of more of a vague connective tissue than the sort of uh, the framing device of this book. You know that there's there's characters that sort of like show up in each other's narratives that make it seem more of like a Robert Altman type movie where there's maybe a lot of different plots going on, but it's sort of like the same, you know, geographical location. It's sort of like, you know, a, a slice of life in one place in one time. Or like, and crash. this is really crashes. Yeah, another movie or, that does that. I mean, I, I guess the big difference between like this and those is that these are told one at a time, right? There's no sense about like intercutting things that are happening simultaneously, even though it doesn't. You guys remember a movie called Go? Oh, wow. Wasn't that that DMX in it? But wasn't that like, uh, yeah, wasn't that one of those things where there's Maybe like, not. you know, four or five different chapters? Was that and Doug, I think there Doug is Lyman, some sort of. Did Doug Lyman direct that movie? Well, let's, uh, sorry, you you talk and we'll, we'll Google. No, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting, it, it does feel. It, it doesn't have Go feels, DMX in it even a little bit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize for that. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it feels like a movie to me because it's clearly all of these movies, all these short films are Coen Brothers short films. And they're they're unified by like the the directorial sensibilities, the dialogue, which is just gorgeous. I just love the writing of. I always have, even when I was like you know a teenager. Uh, the Hudsucker Proxy was one of my favorites. Just the way people talk, the Superman, you know, the the John Mahoney is like the gruff newspaper editor. And uh, was it as uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is just like, you know, she's the fast talking reporter and she's just rattling off words, you know, half of which I didn't understand when I was 13. But I'm just like, who writes like this? Um, and, and it's like the, the music is great. And I think there, there, there really is a compositional unity to the whole thing. And so it doesn't feel like six. It, it doesn't feel like an anthology of six short films that are just like made by six different directors that happen to share a thematic link. It's just, it feels like it, it all is six different takes on almost the same theme, Mm. but I'm don't ask me to articulate exactly what that theme is. We still got a ways to go in this podcast to figure it out. (laughs) So if we were to love actually Buster Scruggs, and if we were to think, okay, we're uncomfortable with the fact that this movie uh, is vignettes and doesn't have everybody at the end meet each other, right? There's a lot of common themes throughout the different uh, segments and a lot of common details that show up between the common segments. But there, but let's hypothesize that at the end, in the stagecoach, it's you've got in the stagecoach, you've got the uh, the trapper, the sort of old wilderness guy who seems to have not been 
uh, part of society at all. And he's been kind of out in the wilderness. Right. You've got the sophisticated woman, uh, but not particularly necessarily wealthy woman who is part of the was a Chautauqua movement, the whole sort of like American intellectual, religious uh, kind of lecture circuit kind of pre TED talk thing. And she talks about the way that people ought to live. And then you've got the flamboyant guy who talks about how you shouldn't play a hand of cards that's for another man. And it's not hard to imagine that scene playing out with Tom Waits, Zoe Kazan, and Buster. And uh, I just say Buster Scruggs because he's so inhabited the character. What's that actor's name? Yeah. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. By the way, in like one of the movie's most obvious sort of uh, uh, repetitions, Tim Blake Nelson, he sits down at the at the poker table, to and and the the rest of the guys say that he can play only if he plays somebody else's hand, and it turns out to be the the dead man's hand, right? It's the famous uh, hand that Billy the Kid was playing, which is what like an ace and an eight, and he refuses to play it, and they say he has to play it, and he's like, no, you can't. It literally, it's exactly what the Frenchman is saying at the end that like you nobody can compel anybody to play another man's hand. So yeah. Exactly. It, it absolutely could be Buster Scruggs. Yeah, it's Wild Bill Hickok, Hickok I believe. Uh, oh, sorry. No, it doesn't matter. Love, actually. Well, actually. Uh, but yeah, but but they don't do that. They don't like take the characters that, you know, are already dead and say kill off Tom Waits as well and put them in the stagecoach at the end of the movie so that they can discuss the ideas that you've just been watching through the entire movie. But it's not hard to imagine a version of the movie that does this. It's also not hard to imagine a version of this movie like Cloud Atlas, which is like a bazillion years long and entirely tedious. But uh, uh, sorry, people love Cloud Atlas. I shouldn't crud on it, but uh <laughs> But like other ideas, like, right? Like, show show uh, me these people. <laughs> show these I can't, people to me. I can't because they've had their faces surgically altered to look like futuristic uh, Asians, I think, yeah, exactly. is what's going on. And it's inappropriate to share yeah. that kind of thing with a wider audience. But like there are specific things. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say that, like, you know. I, I don't think I'm going out on even too big a limb. Maybe this isn't even subtext to say that, like, you know, the the two bounty hunters in the stagecoach at the end are maybe stand-ins for the Coens themselves. Oh. Because, I mean, I feel like because the, the one of them is talking about, like, the way that they the way that they, they take their quarry unawares is they tell stories, right? Is that they tell a story and it's enthralling because people love to hear... I, I mean, it's this great monologue, but it's like people love to hear stories about themselves as long as it's not too much like themselves, right? As long as there's a little bit of distancing. And then, like, while they're enthralled, my partner sneaks up and bashes them on the head. And, it's this, and of course, like, that in itself is a story that enthralls the people listening. And it's, it's this great sort of, like, um, meta moments probably it but but meta not only on two but maybe even three or more levels i mean a couple there's a big cinematic reference in that one which is to john ford's movie stagecoach which is you know takes place in a stagecoach and is a little allegory for i'm sure i've talked about it on the podcast before it's a little allegory for society you have someone from every walk of life in that uh this is slightly altered from that but it's it's sort of clearly a reference to that but like let's be real guys it's it's death right like the stagecoach is they're all they're all dead and they're being ferried into the next world across the the river yeah. sticks or whatever yeah. aren't they yeah and in, in the final act the the existentialist says well if i'm going to die i'm going to put on my hat right and i'm gonna you know like i'm gonna add meaning to my own life with my cool hat that i'm gonna put on as i walk towards death yeah right? like yeah exactly that that was such a great episode of Tales from the Crypt. That, that last vignette, <laughs> I could totally imagine the movie Eddie with like the Crypt Keeper being like, but it would be the Crypt Keeper wearing like a cowboy hat. Oh uh, yeah, how 
Danders Get along, little ghoulies. Yeah, it's like it's funny, you can kind of go genre by genre. They're they're all westerns, but they're like that one is a is a not exactly a phantasmagoria, but that one is like a, a horror movie or a thriller or something. I mean it's not there's nothing horror. It's, it's like stagecoach. It's like a it's like a murder mystery in a stagecoach sort yeah. of thing, right? And yeah. then the the um uh the first one, I, I would argue that Buster Scruggs is a cartoon, right? Yeah, it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Exactly. Great one. Down to down to the logic of he can't fall over when he gets shot until he sees or until we see the hole in his head. Kind of like the character walking off the cliff can't the cartoon walking off the cliff can't fall until they realize that they're not uh, that they that they've you know gone off the cliff and are are walking on on thin air now. Like he's he's got to take off the hat, realize that that's it, and then you know we get the shot of his face and see the hole in his head, and that's right. what and I, you know. I believe his last words are, "Well, that ain't good." <laughs> which, is a, which is definitely a Looney Tunes thing to say. <laughs> ain't I a stinker? <laughs> That's um that's Willie Watson by the way who is uh uh like um was from uh in a band called Old Crow Medicine Show which was part of the like the early 2000s folk revival and he's a singer that I like and have gone have gone to see uh gone to see a couple times and and uh, at the last the last time he played the Spurs for Wings song when I saw him and I had no idea no idea what it was from. So it's sort of always nice to see someone you recognize in the uh in the thing. But he's a real he's a real professional singer. Uh maybe not so much a professional actor, but um does does a good job here. Yeah. I mean to to you're mentioning folk music and I guess to maybe Put a little to show a little bit of the knot that is represented in this movie that Mark has been asking for, and to transition us into talking about the music in the movie, I want you to consider the Liam Neeson and not Neville Longbottom uh, section of the movie, where the guy with no arms and legs is reciting famous speeches from classic the classical Western canon, augmented by the kind of unique American editions that claim to belong to it, most specifically the Gettysburg Address. And so you have this this whole thing where, you know, he has these big speeches and, you know, you you see that and then you see what the people really want to see, which is the chicken that can do math. Uh, And just as a as a quick note, I love how they indict the audience by not showing you the death of the guy when he gets thrown into the river. Because if you're like, why didn't they show it? It's like you're just as bad as the people who want the chicken. You're even worse because you want (laughs) to see this poor person get killed. But but like, um. You know, he makes he makes these sort of highfalutin speeches, the one from The Tempest, right? Uh, what, our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, in th- into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, ye all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so like, okay, that speech is very specifically about the movie that you are watching, right? It is both about the characters in the movie who are all confronting their vocab, their uh, vocabulary, their, their mortality. And, uh, and because they're in a Coen brothers movie, they're also confronting their vocabulary, but mostly they're confronting their mortality. And they're also, 
you know, the audience is supposed to be confronting their mortality by looking at the characters confront their mortality. But the characters are also not real people. The characters are a variety of different sorts of portrayals of a variety of different traditions and styles. They're not people. They're spirits. Right. And then in the midst of all that, you know, you have him giving the guy giving these speeches that are kind of explaining to you what's happening in in the movie and the different speeches that connect to different ones of the vignettes. Right. Like, oh, you know, when in disgrace with fortune kind of reminds me of Zoe Kazan's story. Right. Uh, You know, and like, oh, this, you know, this one kind of the Cain and Abel reminds me of Tom Waits's story. Right. And it's like all kind of tied together. And then there's that scene by the fire where uh, Liam Neeson starts to sing, but he doesn't sing any of the Western canon stuff, he sings the the folk song, right? The Irishy folk song, and and that seems to create this additional layer of the way that people engage with this sort of thing. Uh, I guess it's a different cultural layers. I mean, it's another way that there are two different kinds of people, right? Like fancy people and and common people. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it's just, it's. It's that there's this folk element to it that's related to the kind of high cultural element to it, and it is sort of giving lie to it. But at the same time, it's hard to entirely supersede it. So these two ideas are kind of struggling with each other. I don't know. Did anyone else resonate with that moment or in particular with the presence of all the this actual like legit if some of it is legit folk music, some of it is like early 20th century Western music that is kind of being put in a cowboy movie kind of context, if not for the first time. Others of it is, you know, there's a little bit of it that's original, but uh, a lot of it's Irish or has gone through sort of Irish uh, or uh, or Scottish like kind of interpretation over the years. But what were your reactions to that kind of uh, interaction in the movie and how it all fit together? I don't know. I I really do like the the uh, the trading this bird for wings song. I don't know. If, yeah. Oh, so you like not, the original song? That's the not a that's worthy response to your to your uh, monologue there, but I don't know. It's catchy, guys. I, I I'm I'm rooting for that for best. It's not going to win. I feel like Lady Gaga will win. Right. You know? Uh, but I'm I'm at least looking forward. To, I hope that uh, Tim Blake Nelson and uh, and uh, what Willie Watson. I don't know. Come I, out and I feel like there may be an anti Gaga. Uh, backlash, you know, like the the, oh, the idea being that she's not ready or something, you know, she hasn't she hasn't paid her dues or whatever, and that that this could be a, this could be a dark horse with a with a menacing writer on the horizon <laughs> in the uh, in the Oscar ceremony. I you know I don't know. I mean, with uh, Glenn Close winning the Golden Globe, it it uh, really seems to to throw things into throw things into disarray. Though you're you're probably right, at least with the song. Maybe the song is the consolation prize if she doesn't win the best actress um, Oscar for for Star is Born. Can we can we talk about the one with the uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Dudley Dursley? Wait, oh yeah, yeah. I want to finish. I want to I want to cash out uh, the Pete's Pete's point about. The, oh yeah, about the music. Well, yeah. about, the, about the folk music. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like there are there are tendrils. There's sort of competing competing claims on reality status, right? Like our revels now are ended. Is uh, is what it's like don't take too seriously all the all the carnage right because even though it mm-hmm. seems to depict a historical period um it's not you know these things are are it's film it's genre it's you know not uh, uh not real and it's not documentary and it's not a uh a, a historical historically accurate or or these aren't real people they don't have a claim upon your sympathy that seems to go against how we actually 
experience uh, experience stories, right? Then there's the other one of like the story is like happening for some sort of nefarious some sort of nefarious purpose. Uh, when the two the two bounty hunters like storytelling is for. Um, storytelling is is for distraction and for kind of uh, up to no good sort of skullduggery, right? Um, and then then like Tim Tim Blake Nelson, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know how I got off on this kick. This is a but Tim Tim Blake Nelson kind of is a an author of his own tale. Like he is very particular about what names he wants to be called and what places he is uh, known in reference to, and kind of how how it all gets out there. And I feel like I I don't know. I feel like music because it's never really professional music except in that one great scene in the in the saloon where Tim Blake Nelson starts uh starts up uh uh the piano player um it's never like oh here's a you know here's a performance of music it's people kind of using music occasionally uh to distract themselves or to um, you know, it's it's sort of non aesthetic music. It's it's uh, occasional or or instrumental music. Not not instrumental music. Instrumental music, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to intrinsic. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. uh, the music is there to do something to do something for the characters, and I'd argue that that militates against uh, the various kinds of artifice in in the storytelling, right? Because it's sort of non, because it's non-presentational, it's, uh, it humanizes the characters, right? It's sort of like the kind of mumbling singing that you might do to yourself as you like bicycle down the street. Or, um, I was on a long car trip today and I like, uh, I was like, I forget what I was, or no, I was puttering around the house doing, doing errands or doing like chores. And I was like, just muttering songs to myself. And that, that like, that sort of singing is a that's a real kind of naturalistic character move as opposed to the uh as opposed to the tim blake nelson mode i guess yeah so so i'll grant that but like how do you square with uh at the end of the fourth segment the prospector one where he's singing the same song that he came in with but like uh i I think it's only the second time it comes around as the segment is closing out um you hear the orchestra the non-diegetic uh orchestral music um, sort of accompanying him and, and and giving like a lush sound underneath the melody. Wouldn't it be great in in a situation like that in a film if the orchestra came in in the wrong key? <laughs> It'd be funny if the if the you know the person who was singing was not you know I mean I guess you have you have Tom Waits one of the the greatest singers of the. Uh, of all human history, but the the uh, yeah it's it is that is sort of sort of interesting i mean there there is a lot of artifice and sort of constructedness that calls attention to itself i I would say that you could tell that this is a coen brothers movie from the first shot of the book so (laughs) so beautifully lit like that book they must have spent like three days getting that shot of that book uh just right or you know if it was cgi just in the you know probably even even longer just the way it's lit the color palette the whole the whole thing and like 
rendering that on a on a television. I mean, I have a 4K TV, and let me tell you, like every single little detail was <laughs> fantastically gorgeous and and sharp. The texture of the the cloth cover of the book, the I think that was on a wood table or something. The the uh, grain of the wood and the knots and the the planks and things behind it. And and at that moment, like there's no. It seems like no one else is that that mannered and that um, that gorgeous, you know, yeah. from the very so, beginning. So to answer Mark's question more directly, in that segment, the song is called Mother McCree. It is an Irish song about how whatever you do in your life, the singer who's a man, uh, no matter how many women he meets or or whatever kind of it's particularly like he's going to date or marry or have sex or whatever with various sorts of women in his life. But there's always going to be a place in his heart that he reserves for his mother and he's always going to think of his mother as beautiful. And it is a weird song and kind of creepy, right? Uh, he sings about the silver in her hair and the hands that toiled to raise him. And it's a song of kind of reverence and respect. But it's that weird sort of old-fashioned kind of possessive pseudo-sexual relationship between parent and children is being elucidated in the song. And you can imagine him singing the song because he's remembering the place that he came from and his childhood, which, which in the way that Matt is saying – Oh, the, the way that this man is experiencing this song makes you want to connect with him, you know, to unpack it even a little bit more. It's like, well, this is a man with a mother and his mother died a long time ago, but he still remembers her. Right. And then but then we get into the story of the actual engagement with Mr. Pocket. Right. And the earth where he's <laughs> a gold prospector. Yeah, I love Mr. Pocket. Uh, I love I love how in that sense, talk about an inversion. Right. A pocket is not by default a masculine shape, right? Like a pocket is a feminine shape. And he comes in singing about his mother and what with a sort of gist of the story, which is pretty straightforward at the end of it, is that like um, that, that the humans come into the earth and they have their fights and their horrible struggles and they take what they want from the earth and despoil it. And then they leave and the earth is left. And, in that sense, and I feel like when the orchestra swells up under him singing at the end, it's really hammering the point of this, which is pretty didactic, which is that, like, the mother is the earth, right? That, like, no matter where you go or where you do, there's some part of you that's always going to be associated with the earth or the land. And, I mean, this is further elucidated with his relationship with the owl, right, where he's afraid to take the eggs. He doesn't want to take the all of the eggs from the nest in front of the owl for some sort of super superstitious reason uh, or perhaps a bad experience with an owl attack, but but some yeah. sort of reverence, right? And so it's like you're watching his – his in, you're, you're sort of watching his own reverence be recontextualized from a personal reverence of a son to a mother to a larger reverence of humans and their petty struggles and ugly deaths to to like the earth that birthed them and all of its beauty, splendor and bounty, whatever sort of dirty, quarrelous little creatures they end up being humans. Right. Uh, and I think the orchestra coming in is like taking his individual song and playing it over like the valley. Right. Like capital T, capital V. Littlefoot's going there in the land before time, right? This is the valley, right? It's also the valley of, of you know, the valley is always the place you go after you die, too. But anyway, that's how I read the, the orchestra swelling was the sort of broadening this out into a conversation about all people and all land, not just these people and mm -hmm. these lands. 
Although I don't, I don't read. Uh, he doesn't seem to. I, I mean, I, I like the idea that like it's this natural, it's this Eden, right? It's this perfect yeah. paradise, and then here comes a guy who's trying to like take from the earth, right? Steal from. He's digging holes. He's ruining it. But it doesn't really feel that way. It feels like he's part of nature. It feels that like he's mm-hmm. in communion. No, is it? And I, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. I didn't mean to, I don't mean to, to sorry. No, no, what do you to, got? To poop on your point right when you're saying it, but no way like that, <laughs> especially the way, the way it's set up, uh, in my humble opinion, with the, with the beautiful shots of the, uh, of the landscape kind of un, unspoiled. Like, so I could have just watched that, like, uh, you know, Sir David at, um, you know, nature documentary forever, right? That was like Planet Earth 3, you know, the Old West. And that, uh, that like the scar, the dirt scars that he leaves in the earth as he kind of creates this triangular path of prospecting up to where he finds Mr. Pocket. And you see them in one of the final shots down from the valley, the kind of the scar that mankind has, has left on, on the earth. Now, you're totally right that you, I, I think, I think that, that you like him because you like him. Right. I think you think he's not doing harm because he's he's charming and wonderful and like such a great character and you want him to succeed and you're like rooting for him. And when he gets shot, you know, like it's it's just awful. And you're thinking about how unfair it is. And, and you know, I, I felt the same way. But like, I do think that the um, that he is not uh when you sort of consider what he's doing i I think there are signals that that it's not admirable and that the the that the activity um of the activity of mankind is not is not admirable and that like sort of taming the wild is not admirable i don't mean on one hand on one hand it's like really on the nose what you're talking about there right how like you know, the the majestic elk runs away and the cute butterflies fly away and the little fishies, they all go away. We're like, oh, crap, you know, human is coming. Let's get out of here. He's defiling our space. And then they all cut return uh, as the prospector leaves. Right. So that's like all on the nose. But like it, it this is what I'm talking about when I feel like it does, this doesn't add up to the sum of its parts. Like that runs in cross current to everything you just described there about how we root for the for the prospector. And I, and I'm still not able to see how like those two uh, conflicting things uh, come together. There's, I mean, there's one thing that somebody pointed, I will not claim credit for this. Somebody pointed it out online that, that it's the scene with the owl where there are four eggs in the owl's nest and he's about to take them. And then he sees the owl looking and he backs off and he returns three and he keeps one. And a lot of people, by the way, have pointed out that his sort of like throwaway line is how high can a bird count anyway? Whereas of course, uh, Liam Neeson finds out that a bird could count a uh, very high. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, that's but that's okay. not the thing that, that gets me. The thing that gets me is later in the story. He is shot one time and then he shoots his attacker three times and his attacker dies and he survives and it's this sort of feeling that maybe there's this sort of karmic justice that because he respected the because he sort of like like backed off from the owl and let the owl keep the eggs he got hurt he got he got punished but he was able to sort of like limp off 
alive and the other guy didn't because the other guy didn't respect the natural order of things. He didn't respect that people get to have what they worked for, right? Whether their eggs are gold. I don't know. I mean, like, I see what you're saying, Matt, and I feel like there is some sort of feeling that, like, this is a paradise and it's a shame that he had to dig up. But at the same time, and maybe this is inconsequential, but it feels like what he does is fairly, like, small scale, right? He's digging, like, little holes. And even his final, he digs up one little lump of gold and then he leaves. Now, it's not like he returns the ground to a pristine sense of but it almost feels like he's you're supposed to he's like a naturalist almost you know he lives in the outdoors he's not somebody who he's not somebody who like comes in and destroys the natural world i don't know to me it's like it feels like he has a sort of maybe it's the way that he talks about mr pocket as if mr pocket is like not like almost a friend you know, and I mean, I know, yeah, I suppose it's it's maybe me just liking him and wanting to read it positively that like he's like he's like he wants to be reunited with his friend, Mr. Pocket, as opposed to like he is going to hunt down Mr. Pocket and kill Mr. Pocket and take Mr. Pocket for himself. But there's just something so I don't know. He feels like like presumably Tom Waits goes back to civilization and takes his gold and buys like a like a mansion in some suburb. But that doesn't feel right. It feels like Tom Waits belongs out there in the wilderness, like by himself with his mule. So a couple of quick things. One, I believe that Mr. That Franklin Pierce, President Pierce, gets shot three times and survives and Zoe Kazan gets shot once and dies, which is interesting to think about when you're talking about who gets shot three times versus who gets shot once. Uh, but but also, I, it's interesting to think about um, the, for the, the trapper at the end of the movie says that all people are ferrets, right? What Ferrets dig holes. And then there's the big scene in Zoe Kazan's story with the prairie dogs digging holes. And so I wonder if part of this dynamic, I'm I'm a little bit more on Rather's side of it in that I don't think you can ignore the despoiling aspect of what he's doing. But I also don't necessarily think that there is an essential separation from between that and and nature, you know, capital and nature, because there are other animals in the movie that also do the same thing. And it's it's sort of it's all serves to kind of diminish human beings high concepts of themselves because if we're going out there into the west and just digging holes then we're really prairie dogs then we're like ferrets uh we're not necessarily doing it for sort of grand purposes but at the same time in that context of that story you can see the despoiling of the beauty and and pristineness of it so it's like it, i mean it's a conflict it's an unresolved conflict but I, I wanted to add that one little layer to it that it like does point to the idea that like Tom Waits is doing to an extent what comes naturally to him. And it is a problem that what he does naturally has has does harm and sort of scars the land. Certainly think about all of the uh, Native Americans who are killed because the prairie dogs have dug holes in the prairie. And they're and, and, and I mean, you can even think about the role of Native Americans through the movie in general, which is as a presence who generally don't want the white people there. But the story ends up being about the white people because the story ends up being about the despoiling of nature and the conflict between humanity and and the sort of the, the, the desert and also the sort of and the valley and all of these sort of like land metaphors. Right. It sort of fits because these are people who are destroyers, but they're destroyers by nature. And and then the the Native Americans in the movie are like other people 
who you may believe that they're different. You may believe that they're not. And then that goes back to the conversation. Is it just that they're playing their hand and we're playing our hand and the two are in conflict? Is it the fact that like we're despoiling the valley and they're there to protect it? Right. Um, and the prairie and the digging of the holes kind of destroys them. But it's like this interesting idea that that conflict it's not like nature is red in tooth and claw and nature wants people to fight. Uh, but uh, but there is definitely conflict between the wholeness of the land and like the things that live in it and the people that live in it. And also between some people and other people. And, you know, Buster Scruggs, a horrible homicidal sociopath. <laughs> like that's kind of part of it. It's that, but he's a singing cowboy with a white hat. And conflating these two ideas, right, of like, uh, you know, how the West was murdered is sort of as important in this movie as how the West was won uh, and how the people who murdered the West were then in turn murdered. Uh, and do you believe it was for their sins or do you think it was just happenstance, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it's uh, but Tom Waits is great. And he's got that white hair. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the beard. Also, Zoe Kazan is awesome in this movie. Well, okay, what did so- you guys think of that? Yeah. So, like, then, then to to me, a little bit, I feel like there is, a, there is always a kind of certain cruelty to the to the Cohen's technique, right? Because it's it's pitiless. It doesn't it 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 doesn't actively mock you for caring for caring about the people, but it really gives you no quarter if you if you care about the people. And I feel like the the cruelty is apparent in. Uh, in Zoe Kazan's story, which the the I believe the title of that vignette is "The Girl Who Got Rattled," and that's yes. like yeah. with, the gal it doesn't make sense until the, the very end. Yeah, right. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, she got. And then I thought, like, oh god, she's going to get bitten by a rattlesnake. And I, I got yeah. very, I got very uh, Fenzelian with Life of Pi. I got, we, we need a word for that. Which, like, <laughs> I don't want to watch Zoe Kazan get eaten by a rattlesnake, get bitten by a rattlesnake, and like die alone in the, in the, you know, on the Oregon Trail. I don't want, you know, right here lies, here lies Zoe Kazan, you know, um, has died of, like- of snake bite. Um, Oregon Trail, Oregon Trail style. But then, no, it wasn't. It was it was metaphorically rattled. But like, why characterize her so much? You know, and the the um, William, the the guy who she kind of sort of falls in love with, uh, and sort of realizes that that uh, she has taken a shine to over the course of their over the course of their journey. When after he proposes, and she like considers it intellectually, which is exactly the response you want in a in a proposal of marriage. Though, like, though, how. Um, not exactly transactional how uh utilitarian it is or how how instrumental you know marriage is is how instrumental everything is 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 uh, you know a, a real um theme of of this work um but like yeah you you don't don't she isn't she adorable like isn't she charismatic and and sort of wonderful and like sweet don't you love her don't you live and die with her just the same way you did with the uh um 
uh, with the prospector, like when her brother Jefferson Mays is being an overbearing d bag, like d- you know, aren't you indignant on her on her behalf? And then like uh, you know, then to sort of kill to to kill her to sort of cut her down in her prime, you know. Same thing really for the for the uh, wagon performer, the quadriplegic wagon performer, her, or I should say quadruple amputee. Uh, <laughs> pardon me, wagon wagon uh, performer who you know Lee, the wingless Lee, thrush, the wingless thrush who who uh, alas sings no more. You know, like don't you <laughs> don't you sort of come to love him and and there's that. That's I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm really humping this piano key, uh, but the um, but my point is like it, it is cruel to sort of make you love them before you kill them. It would be nicer to do it Buster Scruggs style where everyone is a caricature and uh, you don't develop real feelings for everyone, right? I mean, one can imagine something of a a theological dialogue wherein one poses this question of God, right? Like, isn't it cruel to make you love people before you kill them? (laughs) Right? Like, it's... uh, (laughs) uh, But yeah, it, it is... I would say that it is a... A sign that the that the movie is not just like it's not all net. It's not all interconnection. There are abrupt and vast differences in tone that happen over the course of this movie, and that they are not all about telling the whole story. That is an anthology, right? It's like it's different stories that have different tones and different ideas. Um, I mean, I felt like I, for me the the sort of the fragility of both. Zoe Kazan and the the trailhand guy whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, their sort of vulnerability and fragility in negotiating their future relationship in the face of everything that could potentially undermine it or destroy it, and also in the face of the kind of hopelessness of their general situations, uh, showed you know a kind of a, a human struggle against a lot of the bleakness that's that characterizes the entire universe that we're in at this point right like what is it that people can do in a situation where like the smiling cowboy can just walk into the room smack the table and make you shoot yourself in the face and then your brother and then you're dead or your brother's dead if that's the way that the world works what could people possibly do that's good and the and the colons are so dry and droll and and cynical in a lot of what they do that you know you do I appreciated the sincerity and the vulnerability and and their and the sort of the moments between the points that they made in their negotiation where you saw how they were feeling about this, the various levels of their situation and the honesty that was in there and the pain. Um, Because it's not it's it would be again, it's like it would be a lot easier if the Frenchman putting his hat on and walking into death at the end of the movie were like a total like, ha ha, I figured it out. Right. Like, no, there are beautiful things in the world and lovely people in the world who may maybe they're there for horrible reasons. Maybe horrible things are happening either because of them or to them or around them. But like they're going to die, too. And and that's part of the picture. Right. Like that's part of what this is all about. You know, this that's uh, that's. Mm And it, it was it's, it's so it's, sad. It's you know? beyond. Well, it's and it's very beautiful for that reason. It's, yeah. it's beyond that as well. I think that like yes, that is a definite thing. Like it does make relationships kind of impossible when you know when like not only is everyone kind of venal and and uh, liable to liable to shoot you to because they like the shirt off your back but the the um but also you know is is uh gonna die like uh like tony award-winning actor jefferson mays who um you know just had, develops a little cough and 
36 hours later is dead. And that, that, uh, like he's, um, how do, how do you love in that? How do you form any kind of attachment with any sort of security? Yeah. But it's, it's not just that. I, d- to me, it was, it was, it was that. And also that, like, it's so hard for them. Like, it's still hard to fall in love. Like, you can tame all the landscape you want. You can, like, dig in the, uh, dig in the earth. You can, you know, I don't know, shoot, uh, shoot Indians. You can, um, you know, be a, a great trail hand. Or, or you know, whatever, uh, whatever your sort of instrumental skills are, um, but like, you know, it's hard to express your feelings, you know, and that like, it's a, it is a great sort of uh, spirited defense of the humanities, right? In the in the the face of, um, you know, a sort of STEM purists, right? Absolutists who would yeah. say that the only important knowledge is practical knowledge. Like, no, like being able to recite Ozymandias is actually useful uh, in this in this situation, and like the idea that because it's more popular, the um, the uh, chicken is intrinsically more valuable. That is false because someday you're going to have to propose marriage and and you know tell someone that that you love her or at least would like to love her or figure out how to. It's so poignant the way they put it. I think we might find comfort in one another, you know, in this, um, in, in this pitiless landscape. And like, you know, I, you know, then you're, uh, being a crack shot is not going to help you at that, at that moment. Yeah. yeah I would also add, there's a, there's a political dimension to it too, which I love. And I love the line when they're took, cause they, of course the dog isn't just any dog. The dog is president Pierce <laughs> and president Pierce is a specific person and a, and a quite an apt choice. And I love the line. I, I put this down in quotes, uh, in the back channel of overthinking it. As soon as I heard it watching the movie, almost all animals are larger than president Pierce, <laughs> um, which is great. President Pierce, uh, in case you didn't know, was the 14th president of the United States and among the worst presidents of the United States who uh, in, who's, was a anti-abolitionist who believed that if he confronted the slavery question that uh, that the country would not survive. And uh, he was from New Hampshire, but he appeased the South way too much. And people consider him to be an utter and total disgusting failure of a human being. And he died a uh, depressed and I think penniless alcoholic. Uh, and so like Part, but part of it is that, like, uh, you know, America is a country that has on numerous occasions shot itself in the face. And, uh, <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> both in terms of the, the fights, you know, between the settlers and the natives and like the murder that takes place. Right. Like and the prospectors and they all shoot each other in the face. You know, the the legless, armless humanities would tell us that this is the story of Cain and Abel. But also there's a particular sort of American failure at play here, which is President Pierce is barking over the dead body of Zoe Kazan in much the same way that like people put their trust in the people in the leaders of America to prevent mass suicide. And the leaders uh, have have proven on numerous occasion to be small and inadequate to the task. And and this idea that the person protecting Zoe Kazan in, in this segment is President Franklin Pierce is just like, oh, my God, it's it's so bad. I mean, it's it's not like it's even worse than Andrew Johnson in a way. Right. It's just like and I don't like to say in a way a lot. But, yeah, just this idea that like I, if you really consider the country, 
this woman should not be walking alone with nothing in the in the tall grass of the uninhabited, you know, virtually uninhabited segments of the prairie, right? Like where the natives even have to ride in from far away to kill people who are who are invading, right? It's that like if there if the president really you know is responsible for everybody, right? Is the representative of the people. If as armless, legless, not level Longbottom says, this is a government of the people, by the people, for the people that shall not perish from the earth. Then like why is Zoe Kazan all alone? Why is there a little yippy dog the president, right? And and I think that in that respect, it's, there's a, there's a little bit of hope there in that you know if the leadership is better. This maybe doesn't have to happen, right? This is the that of all of the situations that are that are played out in the story. While Zoe Kazan's vignette is, I think, the saddest, uh, it is also the one that represents a situation that could be fixed. Whereas I don't really think the other situation. Well, James Franco's situation is just funny, and that's not. I don't think James Franco he suffers unjustly, but like not unjustly, right? And we could go into that too. Yeah. But I mean, that's a shaggy dog story that, that that's just like to get to that punchline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but wait, I want to I want to bring something out about Zoe Kazan, because I think I feel like you're forgetting that she's not just protected by Franklin Pierce. There's Alfred, who is the, the head of the wagon train. And I think he's a really fascinating character because he's so so throughout that segment, he appears almost as like a joke. Right. That Billy, who's the, the young man that she's stuck on, uh, talks about like, oh, you know, I've been working with this guy and he's a genius. He knows everything there is to know about it. And every time he shows up, he's taciturn to the point of like, like blank faced, uh, expressionless. Even when like the guy he's worked with for 10 years comes up and he's like, this is going to be my last wagon trade. Alfred's just like, mm. you know, just sort of like shrugs at him. Right. It's like they barely exchange a word. Um, and then at the end, he goes through such heroic feats of daring do to try to save Zoe Kazan. And it's here's, here's my read on that is that like Billy and Alice, they're people of feeling people of manners, people of like a deep philosophical bent. They have a great conversation about whether uh, certainty or uncertainty is the appropriate way to go through life. Um, and then here's a guy, Alfred, who's the head of the wagon train, and he knows the truth about the world that they're passing through. And because he knows the truth, he can't connect to anybody on the level that they do, right? He, like, won't express emotion out loud. He could barely talk to anybody. But the way that he does express himself is, like, through action, right? Through heroic action and through, like, putting the skills that he has into use, right? So he's not a talker. He's like a doer. And so that maybe to, to refer to the mortal remains, the last one, right, where everyone says that the world is in two types of people. There are the billies who are who are like very polite and very good at interpersonal relationships and very conciliatory and and um, are talkers. Right. And there's Alfred who barely talks. But like the, and I, I don't think it's 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 uh, out of line to say that, like, although he's responsible for everyone in that wagon train and maybe he would have fought tooth and nail to the death to defend anyone in that wagon train. I sort of felt like he made a extraordinary effort to save her because he knew how important she was to someone that he cares about deeply. And the only way he can express how much he cares is by fighting to the death to save the woman that he loves. And I noticed that, you know, you can uh, freeze frame the video and read the pages of the books as they appear, the, the Buster Scruggs book. And the very last sentence is kind of a heartbreaker of that book, which is like, you know, 
as Alfred rode back towards the ragged train, he had no idea what he was going to tell Billy. And it goes back to that sense that like, this is a guy who doesn't know how to talk. He doesn't have the words. All he has is like this ability to act, which in this case was still not enough. Right. So it cements this worldview of like things being extraordinarily bleak that even if you're the greatest wagon trade boss in the world, you can't save you, you, you still can't do anything. Right. Yeah, and we've touched on this in the podcast before. This is great stuff, and it connects with past commentary we've done on the podcast about Westerns, and I'm thinking about The Searchers with the famous shot of John Wayne over the threshold of the house, unable to come into the house at the end, or Shane, right, where he has to ride away from the family, and he has to leave the family behind. And this is just such a Western trope. And and I, I had not connected this character with this trope, Matt, because, because the Coens trick you by making him kind of grumpy and not particularly, like, dashing or attractive, right? And and then it's only at the end that you see that, oh, that's, that's John Wayne. <laughs> like, oh, by the way, who's that guy that nobody can talk to? Oh, it's John Wayne, and he's in the wagon train, and He's going to say, try to save everybody, right? Yeah, or Henry, um, or Henry Fonda in, I mean, the the um, the John Ford version of the Wyatt Earp story, starring Henry Fonda as, as Wyatt Earp. It's called My Darling Clementine, and it ends the same way with you and the camera stuck in town and and the cowboy riding away um, because the the West, I mean, the West is such that the kind of the original sin of America, right, is recapitulated in the West, where it's kind of built on this. It's built on this sort of violent, uh, primal, you know, um, stuff that you can't uh, that that is necessary to sustain the society, but which the society can't tolerate, right? And yeah. so he he uh, he leaves you, um, you know, he leaves the camera, he rides away from the camera, and like yeah, John Wayne, John Wayne almost sort of tower in the Searchers, sort of towers over that door frame, right? Like he towers, yeah. uh, he's he like. Uh, can't even you know he couldn't even fit in the door if he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can but I we talk, should talk yeah, yeah, can, talk can, about james franco, yeah, talk about james I, franco. Yeah, okay, I think that's the one that we haven't that we haven't gotten to yet i want to i want to read i, I want to try to rehabilitate it a little bit um from just being a shaggy dog story though though by the way pan shot pan shot it's kind of like uh, what the what the uh, the grizzled. How great is Stephen Root in pretty much everything he's ever appeared in? <laughs> um, it, he's kind of uh, it's it's sort of the same as the uh, the grizzled wagon train leader who's like go for or hold go for hold or dog hold dog hold at the end where like in the exhilaration of the moment you, you sort of narrate the thing that has happened. But I'm I'm going to read you. I just googled around for this story. Uh, this is on um, uh, KatinkaHesselink.net, Zen Buddhist Stories. A man walking across a field encounters a tiger. He fled, the tiger chasing after him. Coming to a cliff, he caught hold of a wild vine and swung himself over the edge. The tiger sniffed at him from above. Terrified, the man looked down to where far below another tiger had come, waiting to eat him. Two mice, one white and one black, began to gnaw away at the vine. The man saw a luscious strawberry near him. Grasping the vine in one hand, he plucked the strawberry with the other. How sweet it tasted. 
So I've heard another version of that story where the, the guy hanging on the cliff sees a flower and admires, admires its beauty just, uh, just right for that just right for that moment, right? And the idea of James Franco seeing a pretty lady uh, right before his, um, you know, right before his neck is about to break, I don't know, has that, uh, has that sort of, you know, the world, who's, who's to say he doesn't die happy? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. in, this, in, this, uh, in this world, who's to say that the story of his life does not have a happy ending because he sees a beautiful face right before the hood is, is pulled over his eyes? Right. Oh, wow. That's great. I also, while you said it, I wonder, because these Westerns have all this beauty in them, you know, these, and I'm wondering whether pan shot, pan shot is a joke about the grand and luscious landscape photography that happens (laughs) in Westerns, where where it's like, we're all about to murder each other, but first pan shot, pan shot, right? Like, look at the beautiful things. Look at the beautiful things. Uh, Oh, yeah. This, this I, thought, like, I thought that might have been a reference also to the Back to the Future 3, right? Very primitive body armor. Yeah. <laughs> against bullets. Either that or I hope the Coen brothers watch uh, Pure Ownage. <laughs> That's where they got, boom, headshot, boom. Uh, but not so much probably. But yeah, I mean, it was like it was like Ambrose Pierce. That, that felt like a story with real wisdom in it, definitely. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to shortchange it. And I thought James Franco did a good job. Um, and, and sometimes those stories, there's a desire to make them longer, like to watch like the extended cut of the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. But it never really lives up to expectations. Uh, it's It doesn't need to be long. Yeah, I think for all the actors in this, uh, one kind of very admiring thing you could say about them is that they don't all look like themselves right that they that they all have a different kind of kind of appearance uh in the uh in in their characters and they really sort of disappear into this this unified vision of the of the coen brothers even if it's not uh exactly a unified narrative well all right thanks very much for uh for uh listening to the ballad of buster scruggs podcast thank you to matt to pete and to mark for podcasting with me and thank you uh to the members who support and sustain overthinking it by contributing five bucks a month to uh, what we do here. If you'd like to become one of them, you can go to overthinkingit.com slash join for your five, uh, $5 a month. You get not only the knowledge that you are helping us, but also some other great audio stuff uh, for free in the, uh, in the members area of the site. We will be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't deserve. Nobody's going to sing. Yeah. <laughs>